welcome to City Breaks Bath, episode 6, The Season, 18th Century Style. So an episode devoted to that period of time in the 18th century when Bath was the place to be, all sorts of important people, well off if they could afford it, came to Bath every year for a matter of weeks, even months, to do the season, to enjoy everything that Bath had to offer, to meet each other, The older generation were possibly intending to do a spot of matchmaking. Their sons and daughters surely were going to enjoy a little bit of flirting and seeing what was out there and eyeing up the opposition. And so this episode is going to take a look at exactly what did happen during that period. What were these people who, let's face it, didn't seem to be working, actually doing all day? How were they filling their time? What was it that Bath had to offer that apparently you couldn't get elsewhere? or perhaps you couldn't get in quite so elegant a form anywhere else. As we've seen in previous episodes, the fortunes of Bath have fluctuated quite a lot. It certainly had periods of popularity earlier than the 18th century, but something seemed to happen right at the dawn of the 1700s to put Bath really on the map and make people feel that this was somewhere they wanted to come for a season. Lots of factors such as better transport, etc. obviously played a role, But one of the key, key events is deemed to be the visit of Queen Anne herself in 1702. She made it the fashionable thing to do, to come down to the city for a little bit of healing, a little bit of entertainment, and so others began to follow suit. In A Traveller's History of Bath, the authors, Richard and Sheila Thames, are quite dismissive, really, of poor Queen Anne, saying that because she had rather limited tastes, the idea spread that these were the things that you should be doing in Bath, and meant that it never really hit the heights in terms of intellectual attractions. So this is what they had to say about poor Queen Anne. Quote, Her limited cultural tastes, cards, music, food, sermons and gossip, would become staples of the city's social life for the rest of the century. If you know Jane Austen's novels and the passages set in those in Bath, which I'll be coming to in a later episode, then you will probably remember that she too often raised an ironic eyebrow at the goings-on and the triviality of quite a lot of it. Anyway, the season. Okay, so it began about mid-September and lasted really through the winter, through the spring, until June. Most people who came to Bath probably had country estates to retire to and that's what they did in July and August. I don't think everybody came for all that time, but certainly it wasn't unusual to spend 10 weeks, 12 weeks, perhaps a little longer, in Bath. It became a sort of fashionable alternative to London. Plenty of sociable and entertaining things to do were on offer. And then, of course, there was the added bonus of the health benefits. You could come to Bath and drink the waters or bathe. And that would give the whole thing some sort of added purpose. The playwright Oliver Goldsmith wrote a book called The Life of Richard Nash of Bath, which was published in 1762, and although really it's a biography of Beau Nash, it also gives us lots and lots of insight into what daily routine in the city actually was like. He explains, for example, the rather peculiar process of, I think you'd have to call it vetting, which was in place for new arrivals. There's a passage in Pickwick Papers, actually, where the characters there who arrive in Bath become aware that somebody has been sent to meet them to check what they're like and whether they're fit for entry into this form of society. And it becomes clear too in that passage that the person 
actually already knows quite a lot about them in advance. So they've been sort of semi-vetted and now they're just being checked over. And we know that Bo Nash himself would often meet new arrivals in the pump room and question them to satisfy himself that they were fit people to be admitted into the society. If they were, they would be asked to pay their two guineas subscription, which would go towards the balls and the concerts and the various entertainments being held, and in return for which they would get some tickets. So once the preliminaries were over, the important business of settling in and getting on with the routines of Bath could begin. And here again is Oliver Goldsmith on that very topic. Quote, the amusements of the day are generally begun by bathing, which is no unpleasing method of passing away an hour or so. The hours for bathing are commonly between six and nine in the morning, and the baths are every morning supplied with fresh water. And then he goes on and takes us through the whole day, explaining that after bathing there would be some kind of general assembly, as he called it, at the pump room, so people would drift in there, some would be drinking the waters, some would be just sitting perhaps, or walking about, hoping to meet other groups. There might be some music playing, and there would be what he describes as, quote, the conversation of the gay, the witty, or the forward. That's a nice picture of some people being in the forefront, and others hanging back, being a bit shy, perhaps watching rather than joining in. He also explains that during this period, it would be the normal thing to drink perhaps three glasses of the water. So, once you've done your bathing and your drinking of the water, according to Oliver Goldsmith anyway, followed a period of the day when the ladies and the gentlemen went their separate ways, both to coffee houses, but separately. I don't know how true it is, but Oliver Goldsmith seems to think that the ladies simply went to a coffee house and then went back to their lodgings to eat breakfast, whereas the gentlemen, as he put it, withdrew to their coffee houses to read the papers or converse on the news of the day. It's still only about noon, so there's a lot more day to fill. Some people went to church, but the great activity seemed to be walking, parading, very possibly on one of the parades, North Parade or South Parade, where you'd have a little group, wander up and down, chat, amuse other people, make some arrangements for later, perhaps arrange to meet for a card party or to go dancing together in the evening. A lot of this took place in the town centre, but people were also known to walk across the meadows, perhaps walk along the river or the canal, maybe even climb some of the hills leading out of the city. And so with all of this, one way or another, you would get to the dinner hour, and then a whole new phase would begin. Here's Oliver Goldsmith again. After dinner is over and evening prayers ended, the company meet a second time at the pump house. From this they retire to the walks and from thence to go drink tea at the assembly houses, and the rest of the evenings are concluded either with balls, plays or visits. Thus Bath yields a continued rotation of diversions, and people of all ways of thinking, even from the libertine to the Methodist, have it in their power to complete the day with employments suited to their inclinations. So that's a very nice fancy way of saying they weren't really doing very much, but there was something for everybody. And whatever your interests were, you ought to be able to indulge them in Bath. It was quite fashionable among the intellectuals to look down on some of this rather, think it all a bit trivial. But there are plenty of examples of people who firstly enjoyed what Bath had to offer, and secondly then chose to be rather dismissive about it, as if really they were above all of that. And 
top of my list of people for doing that is one Christopher Anstey, born in 1724, who was a Cambridge Don until the point when his father died and he inherited the family estate, and he promptly gave up work, retired to the country, and led what I have seen described as the life of a, quote, literary dilettante. So he would translate the odd poem into Latin, maybe put pen to paper himself occasionally, write the odd piece, and when he became ill, he went to do a season in Bath to see if that helped. He liked it very much, and he went every year during the 1760s. So he must have found pleasure in it, and perhaps a welcome change from doing not much in the countryside and coming to Bath and doing not much there. But then he wrote a book called The New Bath Guide, which was published in 1766. Actually, it had a subtitle, which was The Memoirs of the Blunderhead Family in a Series of Poetical Epistles. And he could be really quite mocking and perhaps a little dismissive, as he is in these lines where he's writing about the great mix of very different people who meet in Bath and I suppose asking the question, how well did they actually get on? What happened when the very pious met those whose love in life was gambling, for example? Okay, so here's Christopher Anstey. Where gaming and grace each other embrace, dissipation and piety meet. May all who've a notion of cards or devotion make Bath their delightful retreat. I suppose you could say that's just a something for everyone sort of verse and it's singing Bath's praises, but I think I hear a little bit of derision in there somewhere. And it certainly is true that the card playing did sometimes become gambling and sometimes got out of hand. The poet Robert Southey grew up in Bath and he wrote quite descriptively about the sort of gamblers who arrived in the city, some of them just hoping to make a lot of money at the expense of someone else, possibly by cheating, and others who were gambling in a different way, trying to win some of life's goodies by finding a rich marriage partner. So this is what he had to say about that. Quote, it is a fine place for gamblers, and for that species of men called fortune hunters, a race of swindlers of the worst kind. They make it their business to get a wife of fortune, having none themselves. Age, ugliness, and even idiocy being no objections. So a definite hint that at least some of what was going on under the surface was nothing other than a marriage market. Often centred on the young people, as we so often hear in Jane Austen's novels, but actually not always. Widows left with very little money, looking for a second husband, and the very particular kind of male fortune hunter, as described by Robert Southey. The idea of idleness and boredom comes up quite a lot. Descriptions of a lot of people brought together with perhaps not really all that much to do except to look for entertainment, and the fact that they found it in what you could call quite trivial pursuits. Walking, a spot of shopping, perhaps eating or drinking too much. This is all quite nicely explained by one Louis Simon, who was a French traveller, in Bath in about 1810, we think, who also makes the point that, of course, the people with money to spend and not much to do brought some good news for the shopkeepers of Bath and the traders in general. So here then is Louis Simon on what he thought was going on when it came to most of the visitors arriving in Bath for the season. Quote, no trade, no manufactures, no occupations of any sort except that of killing time, the most laborious of all. Half of the inhabitants do nothing. The other half supply them with nothings. 
a multitude of splendid shops, full of all that wealth and luxury can desire, arranged with all the arts of seduction. So that's a general picture then of what was going on on a typical day during the season. But to turn to another aspect, there was one man in particular who really sat absolutely at the centre of all of this. I think I've mentioned him already, but here in the episode on the season is where he really belongs, and that's one Beau Nash. Because he it was who sat really at the centre of all of this, directing operations almost like a conductor. He gradually devised a strict system of rules, which are actually known as the rules, which the whole of the society ran to. So who actually was he? Well, he arrived in Bath in about 1705, and we know that he'd already been in the army and tried the law. It's a suspicion that he didn't succeed at either of those particularly. He stayed in Bath for the rest of his life, dominated the society, wrote the rules really and made sure people kept to them for fully over half a century. He was a flamboyant sort of man. Just in his clothes, for example, he used to wear a white beaver hat. People weren't quite sure where his money came from. It was believed, really, that he was making most of it from gambling. But he certainly did make a lot, and before long, he was being driven round Bath in a post-chairs, pulled by six grey ponies. And to announce his arrival, there'd be a horn player or two, running along beside, and a footman ahead of the coach, clearing the way. Beau Nash was coming. He began his life in Bath as a sort of master of ceremonies, so employed in the pump room, playing a meet-and-greet role, really, in charge with making sure that everything was kept orderly. But I think he was one of those people who expanded his own role. He had a huge personality. He seems really to have just forced people to accept his authority. So he it was who vetted new residents when they arrived in Bath. If he didn't approve of them, they would not be allowed to attend functions. And he would actually interview them, in the pump room usually, perhaps ask them to perform a minuet, or to answer questions about the strict dress code, and he would explain all the rules. They would dutifully agree to stick to them all. Everybody knew where they were. And the rules were quite something. A great long list, but just to give you a flavour. For example, ladies, no aprons in the ballroom, thank you very much. He had obviously noticed that some ladies were indeed arriving, still wearing the apron that they may have worn at home to protect their clothing but he thought that was a bit too working class, made them look like maids, and it wasn't to be seen out in polite society. Men, absolutely no riding boots or spurs, thank you very much. You are to change, after your riding activities, into shoes. He had ideas about the timing of everything. Dancing, for example, would have to end on the stroke of eleven in the evening. One of the reasons he gave for this was that people needed to be home relatively early and get a good night's sleep, otherwise they wouldn't be in a fit state to get up early the next morning and go to the baths and drink the waters. And that surely was one of the main reasons why they'd come to bath in the first place. So, no dancing after eleven. No excessive eating or drinking either. He was very fond of what he called the virtues of, quote, moderation, order and routine. And then two, which I really like, no swords or duelling, very 18th century, we do know there were duels occasionally. I think in the anthology episode I'm going to come to a story about Richard Sheridan, the playwright, fighting not one but two duels over a lady with whom he'd fallen in love. Anyway, in polite society in Bath there would be no swords or duelling and there would also be no gossip. The wording in the rules explained what people's attitude to gossip should be. Quote, 
all whisperers of lies and scandals should be taken for their authors. So he's quite good at understanding human nature. He wasn't going to allow people to pass on a bit of tittle-tattle and claim that someone else had told them. They would have to take full responsibility for it, and that, he hoped, would put them off. You might be wondering how everybody saw all of this. In fact, it does seem that it was reasonably well received. People could see that if order was kept, then Bath would generally be a nicer, safer place, somewhere you could bring your wives and daughters, and know that they would be protected and feel safe. The memorial tablet to him in the Abbey lists his title as being Arbiter Elegantarium, which I think means something like the Arbiter of Correct Etiquette. Person in charge of rules for an elegant society, something like that. We know that a lawyer who visited Bath at the time, one Dudley Ryder, described Bone Ash as being, quote, the life and soul of all diversions. Without him, there is no play or assembly or ball. Oliver Goldsmith, who wrote his biography, claimed that even the royal family felt that they had to abide by the rules which Bone Nash had set, and did not try to deviate from them. I don't know if that's completely true, but certainly it gives the picture of a man whose word held sway. He did become a slightly diminished figure in later life. There were one or two scandals surrounding him. He was thought to have quite big debts. He became less capable of dominating the whole of society, so his role diminished a little bit. But, set against all that, is the knowledge that at his funeral there was an absolute outpouring of grief. People had liked him because he was flamboyant. They recognised that he'd done a lot of good work, for example, supporting charities, the Royal Mineral Water Hospital, for example, and a charity school. A lot of people could give testament that he'd given donations to needy people. Sometimes in a rather flamboyant way, it's said that it wasn't unknown for him to win at cards and hand some of his gambling winnings straight over to someone in need. And so descriptions of his funeral are really quite moving. It's known that the Mayor of Bath granted £50 towards the cost, and that his body, after it had lain for four days for people to come and pay their respects, was conveyed to the Abbey in a solemn procession with girls from the charity school at the front, boys from the same school following behind, all singing a hymn. The Master of the Assembly Rooms was the chief mourner, closely followed by beadles from the hospital, to which he'd contributed quite a lot of his own money and for which he'd spearheaded a fundraising campaign. And behind them, in the procession, a whole lot of patients from the hospital, all visibly very upset. Here's a description of the event from a book called Sometimes in Bath by Charles Nevin. Quote, The crowd was so great that not only the streets were filled, but, as one of the journals expresses it, even the tops of the houses were covered with spectators. Each thought the occasion affected themselves most. As when a real king dies, they asked each other, where shall we find such another? So we have a lot of information about what life was like in this period. You can learn about it from historians, from the diary entries of people who lived through it, from books like Oliver Goldsmith's biography of Bo Nash, and from novels such as those by Jane Austen and Dickens. But maybe you're wondering where can you go in Bath today to get a flavour of this era. You'll find information about it in lots of the museums which we'll be mentioning in other episodes. But two places in particular, built during this era and still there today, are the Pump Room and the Assembly Rooms. 
So when you go to either of those, do try and keep in mind all the pictures that I've hopefully conjured up for you in this episode. The pump room then, that's down in the same square as the Roman baths in the Abbey, so very easy to find. The original version was built in 1706. There had been a pump outside there, which was very much used, but it was decided that it would be much nicer if it were given some protection, if it were put inside, if a building were built around it. So the pump room was duly built, and straight away that became somewhere where you could linger, meet others, socialise, do a lot more than just drink your allotted share of the water and go away again. So popular was it, in fact, that a new one, a new version was built in 1790, opened by the Duchess of York, and the upward trend continued of this being a fashionable meeting place right in the centre of Bath, where, yes, you could drink the waters, but you could also socialise and be seen. If you look at the outside of the building today, you'll see that there's a statue of Beau Nash on it, high up, and there's also an inscription in Greek right across the front of the building, the translation for which is something like, Water is best. So a reference to the main purpose of this building when it was put up, namely the partaking of Bath's health-giving mineral water. The inside of the building was altered a bit in Victorian times, but if you look inside, you'll see an elegant large interior, chandeliers, somewhere where it's quite easy to imagine the society walking to and fro and stopping to socialise and generally take part in the bath season. The purpose of it today is really that you can go and take tea and bath buns or other goodies in very elegant surroundings where there will be a pump room trio or possibly a pianist to entertain you. And I think you'll find that if you sit there and order a little something and put your imagination to work, you will soon be conjuring up scenes from Jane Austen novels. And then the second building, which dates from this period, is the Assembly Rooms. At least that's what it's called today. A few minutes' walk out of the town centre, up Milsom Street and on a bit further, perhaps 10 or 15 minutes in total from, say, the Abbey or the Pump Room. And you need to know that if you come across the word Assembly Rooms in, for example, a Jane Austen novel, there were, in fact, in her day, two the lower assembly rooms, which is now no longer, and this one, which, presumably because it's up a slight hill, was known as the upper assembly rooms. It was opened in 1771 as a building where assemblies could take place, which they defined as, quote, a stated and general meeting of the polite persons of both sexes for the sake of conversation, gallantry, news and play. They were designed by John Wood the Younger, so he of Royal Crescent fame. And the idea was that lots of guests would be able to meet here to dance, to listen to concerts, to drink tea, play cards, or just walk about and socialise. There were four rooms, all of which still exist today. So the largest is the ballroom, where it's known that balls were held at least twice a week during the season, and at which there would be between 800 and 1,200 guests. It's a big high room, so presumably it didn't get too stuffy. And it had windows, although these had been thoughtfully set quite high up so that outsiders would not be allowed to look in. Small rooms in the building included the tea room, which was used for taking tea, of course, but also sometimes as a small concert room. And there would be evening entertainments there with a tea interval, all included in the entry price. Then along from there, you've got the octagon and the card room. I think the octagon was built first, supposed to be another space where people could circulate, perhaps play cards, 
except on Sundays when that wasn't allowed and when organ recitals were heard instead. But the card playing seemed to grow apace and so eventually a new room was added just for that, known as the card room. Today, what was the card room is actually used as a cafe, so that's a good way to see inside that. And actually, another useful thing to know is that on the Assembly Rooms website, there is actually a virtual tour of the whole building, so you can look close up at all four rooms. And today, again, another reason for going there is the fact that the Bath Fashion Museum, which I'll come to in a later episode, is actually housed in the basement of this building. So that might be another reason why you go inside. I'm sure you've seen lots of films of Jane Austen novels or other 18th century pieces where dances are held and imagining any of those will help you imagine what went on in the assembly rooms. And you may like to know certain films were actually filmed inside. The 1987 version of Northanger Abbey, for example, Persuasion, both versions, 1994 and 2006, The Duchess. So again, if you've seen any of those, you'll find it easy to picture in your mind a typical evening at Bath's assembly rooms in the 18th century. And so just to finish, a few quotes from Daniel Defoe, who wrote A Tour Through the Whole British Isles, published in 1724, which included A Visit to Bath. So he's a bit earlier than the Jane Austen era, but a time when the season in Bath was really being developed and growing into what it would become in its heyday a few decades later. He, for example, describes all the socialising that went on. Quote, Here the ladies and gentlemen pretend to keep some distance and each to their proper side, but frequently mingle. They converse freely and talk, rally, make vows and sometimes love, and having thus amused themselves an hour or two, they call their chairs and return to their lodgings. Here he is then on the events later in the typical day. Quote, in the evening there is a ball and dancing at least twice a week, where there never fails in the season to be a great deal of very good company. And finally, he is a little bit dismissive about the idea that most people came for the reasons of health, because actually, in his opinion, it was much more about enjoying yourself. Quote, the bathing is made more a sport and diversion than a physical prescription for health, and the town is taken up in raffling, gaming, visiting, and in a word, all sorts of gallantry and levity. So there you have, I hope, a good round picture of the season in Bath, as enjoyed throughout most of the 18th century. That rounds off this week's episode, but leads us nicely also into next week's episode, when I'm going to look at Jane Austen and Bath. A little bit of biography, when she was here, what she thought of it, a look at the novels of hers which are particularly set in the city, so Northanger Abbey and Persuasion, and a reference to, to one or two places you can visit if you want to find out more. So for now then, thank you very much for listening. I do hope you'll be able to join me next week for another look at the season in Bath through one very particular pair of eyes. Perhaps you'll even be inspired in the intervening few days to fish out some Jane Austen and have a little read. Always a worthwhile activity, I feel. Anyway, thank you again, and goodbye for now.